Welcome to the Mix panel. Welcome to the Sony Mix for Picture. How many years has this been running? Five years, I think. Six years, close. Uh, my name is Phil Wagner, and uh, I'm, I've been in this industry for quite some time dealing with studio electronics and surround speakers and mixing consoles and all sorts of fun things. And I always find that immersive, well, surround technology has always been fun because that's what we listen to at home. Without further ado, I want the panel to quickly introduce themselves and tell them in 30, tell everyone here in 30 seconds a little bit about yourself and how does this topic affect your life. Start at the end. Start with Mark. Okay. I'm with uh, Streamline System Design, and uh, we install uh, Atmos systems and audio systems. We work with these great people at Sony on the uh, Cary Grant and also Theater 3 here. And uh, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm Lane Birch. I'm with Sony Pictures, the post-production sound department. Um, I oversee these stages in the engineering department. Um, I do have a background in sound as far as mixing, editing. I've done a lot over the years, but uh, engineering seems to be my fit. Uh, so I have been overseeing the uh, integration of Atmos into our theaters lately. Hey, I'm Ron Romano with Belmont University. Uh, we're out of Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, our premier stuff is uh, audio engineering technology and motion pictures. We also um, own Ocean Way Nashville on Music Row, and uh, I'm the technology specialist for the College of Entertainment, and uh, I do uh, all of our Mac administration and systems engineering. Um, anything that goes beyond analog tech work becomes mine, which is where all this stuff starts to fall with S6s and Atmos and Dante. So that's uh, that's all falls under me um, for all of our all of our school rooms. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Sean Jones. I'm the CTO of uh, Audio Intervisual Design. We're a local. Uh, AV reseller, professional products, um, and also systems integrator. We uh, build Atmos re-recording rooms, ADR rooms, digital uh, uh, digital cinema screening rooms, uh, DI facilities, uh, pretty, pretty much the gamut of uh, AV systems. Hi, I'm David Henze. Uh, I have a studio called Henze Sound. It's a Dolby Atmos home entertainment studio. And we do recording. I've spent my life uh, recording mostly music, but also post and uh, late night television, concert touring, front of house. And uh, so, uh, yeah, we just got off the ground uh, several months ago and, uh, and enjoying it, something new. Hi, I'm uh, Pat Kalani. I'm with Audinate. Um, I'd say throughout my career, I've generally worked for manufacturers mostly. I thought I, I thought I was going to be a guitar player, thought I was going to be an engineer, but found that apparently what I do well is teach. So um, whenever new technology comes around, I help people learn about digital mixing, I help people learn about CD burning, help people learn about whatever. So uh, nowadays it's, you know, learning how, helping people adapt to networks and, and understand how all that works. So that's my, that's my deal. Great. Well, thank you. It's, a, it's an honor to be on this panel with uh, many people I know and uh, very smart people. So uh, I want to talk about the, just the title, Network Studio, Building a Near-Field Immersive Room with Audio over IP. 
Uh, so I'm going to start with the audio over IP. Uh, when I went to David's room recently, we knew each other for a very long time, I found it very interesting because I've been supplying a lot of this technology, not realizing uh, and with following Atmos that you have 128 channels that come out of your Pro Tools rig, and, and why do you need a network link that can handle 128 channels? And, and the fact is that you do get a, a very wide amount of content from the workstation into the RMU, Dolby unit. And um, speak to that a little bit, Patrick. That wouldn't be possible without your company's technology. Oh. Yeah, so, um, so when I first looked at Dante back in the day, I mean, one of the things, you know, I looked at the Cat 5 and I said, really, you know, 512 channels down that, huh? Really? Well, it's pretty good. Um, anyway, so the channel density that you can get out there is one thing that's really neat. The other thing that's actually really cool about it is the fact that you can reroute and patch and do all sorts of things like that within the studio. So certainly, I'd say by the time you're coming out of your you know, surround sound going into the speakers in the ceiling, that patch probably isn't going to change too much. But um, getting from other systems in the room, you want a special processor or something like that, you can roll in. It's very easy to make those connections. Um, we were talking about earlier, uh, you, know, you used to have to get your patch bays out and start patching a whole lot of these things. Uh, with Dante, the fact that you could just kind of say, make this horizontal one-to-one -one patch all the way across, boom, I just patched 128 channels. Oh, that, that saved me a lot of time. <laughs> That's a lot of color-coded cables that we saved. So, um, yeah, that was, that, was a, that was a pretty revolutionary thing from our perspective. Great. And, Ron, you started building uh, Belmont University's facility, revamping it with a huge grant four years ago, and you had the forethought to do Dolby, you had the forethought to do uh, Dante uh, with a lot of folks right here. What was the thought process behind that? Uh, sure, well, um, we, were, we were really lucky. Senior leadership was well behind us, uh, having one of the most exclusive new buildings for what we do. And um, uh, we, after uh, some of our leaders came out here and took a tour of a lot of facilities, they asked everybody what their wish list was, and when, we, when they brought that back to the leadership, said, well, let's do all of those things. And uh, that was really exciting. And Dolby Atmos and uh, uh, Audio Over Networks with the Redneck gear and Dante was, was all on the forefront of that. Because we also wanted to make sure that, you know, as a teaching facility, we were putting cutting-edge things in so that um, not only would we get a long run out of our investment, which is very important in education because budgets and things like this, don't come come around frequently. Not that that's just unique to education, but certainly for us, um, with education, and uh, and we want to make sure we're you know doing the right thing for our students now and and as the future went along. I mean, we were we were the first Dolby Atmos uh, mix and playback uh, stage at any university in the world. We were the first one, so we we were very excited about that and and. Uh, it was really unique even for, for us, typically in education, you're hoping that your gear will catch up to your curriculum. And we had now the, the kind of exact opposite, which was fantastic. We had all this stuff that was ahead of even what we had, we had thought about because we never had those facilities. So, so that, uh, that, that made it all a no-brainer for us. That's great. And uh, I think universities have an academic responsibility to teach the future, and certainly Belmont is right there. Absolutely. Now, David, on the other hand, you don't run a university or a private uh, facility. Uh, what was your motivation to go for the future of Atmos? Uh, the first time I really got to uh, check it out was at uh, the convention in Los Angeles, the AES convention. And uh, 
And then I read some things saying about how it was going to get deep into the consumer market, which is my part of it. And uh, then I heard a Bruno Mars mix over at Westlake, and I fell in love with it. It sounded spectacular. And uh, I've pretty much always been into new things, and, uh, and uh, that's obviously where it was going to go. And... Well, I just got lucky and I made the right choice. <laughs> After three years, you, you still believe that? Absolutely. Uh, actually, it's well beyond my expectations. That's fantastic. Now, Lane, you uh, are responsible for operating how many rooms? We have 14 dub stages here, three ADR, three, three Foley, and one scoring stage. And how many of the 20 rooms you just mentioned are, are equipped with Atmos? We have six right now. Gotcha. And last, uh, three years ago, how many did you have? Tommy, my boss, just corrected me. It's seven. <laughs> <laughs> so, and this has come up pretty quickly, I imagine? Yes. So, um, so quickly that I had two being built at the same time that were two major projects. That's great. And over what period of time do you think all 16 will be Atmos equipped? Well, our goal right now is within, Tommy says three years, I say two years, so... Gotcha. Uh, <laughs> So this Atmos business is here to stay? I believe so. Good. Mark Roberts, from your perspective with Streamline, you're outfitting some fairly significant mm -hmm. facilities with Atmos. What, yes. what types of thing, trends are you seeing? Well, a lot of the rooms like, are going for the cinema mix environment, but also there's a fair number going for the home audio mix environment. And that is a, a delineation that is going to come down to the size of the room. If any of you guys are thinking about building a stage or a, a mix environment, is if you're going to do something for cinema, it's going to only be allowed at a certain width and depth and, and height also. Yes, you can have a near-field environment, but that near-field environment might be like 30, 32 feet at, at the least. And then you're going to have to say, will this you know, transfer to a bigger room? If you're doing for the home, you can make it a smaller environment. And that's scalable to your guys' budgets and where you're looking. So if you're planning on building for cinema mixing in that environment, you really have to look at what Dolby will bless. From an SPL perspective? Is it a lot of it have, have to do with how many speakers hit the SPL? How do you get the SPL in the room with all those outputs? Yeah. And, you know, the type of speaker you use, there's all, I don't know if anybody's gone through a dart and started calculating a room. You can use certain amplifiers, certain speakers that have to get to a certain level. And then this is one way to tell even your budget. Do you plan on going for a, a certain speaker manufacturer? Because... We know which ones are the expensive ones and which ones that are, can be affordable and what's in your budget and what your client will want. So that's that factor too. And then you also have to factor in, what do I need to do to the room to make it sound good too? Because no matter how much you spend on a room, you're going to have to make the room sound tight. And so it's not vibrating, so you're having accurate sound. Because once you bring that SPL level up in that room, remember, we're coming from this point sources here. 
Now we have it all up in the room. We, got, we can have four subs in here. And when you're listening to something at reference level, I mean, the room comes alive. So that's another thing that should be thought of when planning your budget for a room. Thank you, Mark. Now, Sean, uh, your company, Audio Individual Design, which you're the chief technology officer of, it's a pretty important title, um, you deal with all the lots here. AID has been in the forefront of, of post-production in Hollywood for a very long time. What, the, what challenges do you see in this new emerging technology uh, race? Well, well the, the majority of the challenges, um, not so much on the uh, studio side, uh, it's more in the... Um, what I would say, the deliverables market, the, the smaller facilities, which uh, um, are sort of all in a rush right now to get into Atmos because uh, obviously between Apple, Netflix, Amazon, uh, pretty much all which have some level of Atmos delivery requirement or will very shortly, there's a uh, tremendous need for um, facilities that can do the versioning, not just the initial mix, but the, the versioning is the big uh, the big the big item right now. So a lot of facilities that are trying to do conversions and just uh, as uh, um, was mentioned about, uh, you know, room issues, um, those come into play a lot because a lot of these smaller facilities, um, the dimensions of the rooms are challenged trying to meet the specifications that Dolby has for, um, these are all home entertainment rooms, um, trying to meet the the physical dimensions that are required is often a challenge, uh, trying to shoehorn them into the existing spaces so they're acoustically correct uh, is quite a challenge. And then um, speaking to the IP end of this, uh, you know, we've done, uh, in the past eight months, we've commissioned 17 rooms, of which 12 of them have been Atmos. Um, and, uh, of those 12, uh, they, they run the gamut of completely IP-based, where, I mean, it's literally the only analog audio is coming out of the amplifier to the speakers. I mean, that's it. Um, to um, sort of hybridize systems. Um, and that's sort of dependent upon the uh, technical capabilities of the facilities themselves. Um, you know, some of these facilities have very competent technical and networking staffs. Um, some of them do not. So um, that's a trend that uh, we see quite a bit of. And uh, um, so it's sort of defining which technology makes the most sense for those environments. Great. I'm going to pick up on a point you mentioned about uh, smaller rooms. Uh, David's room is a perfect example. I mean, for very many years, people would say, I'm doing music, and we'd like to get into uh, work with home theater uh, or, or film mixing and, and post-production. And I would tell uh, recording studios to proceed very cautiously. But what we see in David's room is a, a very good example of someone clearly knowing what they want to do and being able to do it to the point where he's got Dolby certification in a room that is probably not more than 150 square feet. So what is the actual dimensions of your room, David, and how were you able to get that into Dolby certification? Uh, roughly 16 feet by 15 feet, uh, and multi-floor level. And to get the certification, basically what we did is we let them design it. So I wanted to use Adam's speakers because I know my customers can trust what they're hearing, and that's 100% of the reason why. 
And then uh, we gutted the room out completely and let Dolby put the speakers where they felt that they needed to be and acoustic treatments as well. Once that was done, we built the rest of the room around that. So that it started with the placement of the speakers, the type, size of speakers, and then we just uh, let everything fall into place after that. We let them spec the network, we let them spec the RedNet. And uh, so of course, when it came to getting certification, if you, you know, have Westlake and Dolby design your room, uh, you're probably going to do pretty good when that time comes around. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> and now, how high is the room? Uh, about eight and a half feet. It's a uh, multi-level. Now, now uh, Patrick, I'm sorry. No, please, okay. Uh, Patrick, you're uh, with with Audinate, um, being in the middle of all this. It's great. And and what do you? Talk about how simple it is. I mean, it can be very complex from a network point of view in a multi-room facility. And Lane, you talked about that earlier with people are really isolated, not connected. And in a place like this, it makes sense. But just the basic mechanics of getting it working are very easily facilitated by uh, the ease of use of, of Dante. Yeah, so uh, we used to go around and do uh, training for a lot of live sound people, right? And uh, I always say, like, I was a musician, I was a guitar player, I never really said, you know what would be really cool is if I could take this guitar and put it on the computer network to get it back to a PA system. Um, but later on you realize, like, it's all about the flexibility and things like that. And um, so basically what, what has developed over time, we've got a, a certification training, there's level one, two, three. Level one, I have never seen anybody fail. Any, anybody. Anybody. Uh, and that is probably... Frankly, you don't even have to take that to be able to figure it out. You can, somebody could show you in about 15 minutes how to make this work, and it would be fine. Uh, we have a level two training that we developed more so. It wasn't so much that people needed the training. It's that they started fearing the mysterious black box, and they started blaming the network when the problem was actually something else. I've had a number of uh, tech support calls to say, oh, you know, that yeah, there, there was a network dropout. And then like five seconds later, it faded back in. There's no volume controls in Dante. That somebody took the cue wrong and then faded it back in hoping nobody would notice. That's the kind of stuff that happens though. Uh, you know, somebody else updated firmware on their on their wireless mics and that wiped out all their frequency assignments and things like that. Those are the types of things that cause problems more often than not. Um, so yeah, so the network is actually very easy to use. It can be complex if you want it to be. Um, usually when we have, we even have a layer a, a level three certification. That's really for integrators though, if we're on a corporate network. And it's not about our system at that point, it's what's the security requirements on the corporate network. That's when things get a little bit tricky. But if you're just setting up a simple system, you put a network switch down there, we even say don't, if it's just an audio network, don't even make any changes to it. Just let it be, let it run, and you're probably gonna be very pleased with the result. So David, coming from a multi-core audio background, did you have any trepidations when Dolby said you have to use switched audio and you're going to plug everything into the network? No, uh, actually I was not really. Uh, actually I was happy that uh, because we're using a Mac server, we were able to go all with Dante. And so anytime you can do, take something and simplify it, it's for the better. Uh, the thing that was hard was 
uh, what you're used to seeing in a Pro Tools I.O. is no longer what you're seeing. Uh, the outputs might be audio outputs, or they may actually be objects if you're using the tempo panner. And, uh, and of course, buses are not buses anymore. Those are outputs and objects and everything. And, uh, but the Dante certainly made it simple, and it's really dependable. It's stable. And, uh, and so I just keep a backup of all the networks, because we switch to a stereo setup sometimes. So the whole thing has to be switched. And it does it without a hitch. And, uh, and what I do is I keep one folder in my documents folder that has all the RedNet, Dante, Pro Tools I.O., everything in one spot. And uh, so it simplifies it. And uh, it's, it's stable and it's uh, you know solid. Thank you. Mark, when people come to you and say, we want to do an Atmos room, what type of questions do you ask them? Well, let's see. Um, can I do this? <laughs> how much is it going to cost? <laughs> and how long is it going to take? And let's see. You know, the fast, cheap, and good. You, only, you can only pick two. So <laughs> that math problem applies there. Um, again, I think when you're thinking about doing this, you need to see what your goal is going to be, who your customer is going to be. If you're going for, again, the home, or you're going to be going for full-on cinema, and or do both at the same time. So that scalability, scalability is what you're going to need to think about. Excellent. And, and Lane, from, from I mean, Sony as a company uh, is certainly everywhere, and, and where do you see the future uh, for the customer's sort of use of Atmos? Is there an adoption figure that you know, and maybe it's a Dolby question, but what do we see? I know something that's being worked on I can't talk about that uh, we've seen that is really impressive, and if and when it comes out, everybody will be blown away from an immersive standpoint. Uh, I think that's about all I can say about that, but... Um, but as far as us building all of our rooms to be immersive and handle Atmos, um, I think that it just helps the whole industry get more content out there. And, and from a content out there perspective, it's certainly from an archival point of view, because whether someone's listening to it in Atmos today or if they revisit the content in three years, the capacity needs to be in there from an encoding point of view for them to be able to enjoy that. So I guess that's one of the main uh, This summer I went to um, an event that Dolby had at their theater, and a lot of what they were talking about was having Atmos as being, you know, your, your main mix. That's the standard, and then you'd be able to down mix from there. And I do think that's where it's going. It'll be there soon. We talked a little bit in the green room, and, and Sean, maybe you can talk on this, about the actual configuration. It's... Uh, a little difficult to get your head around, and for the average person thinking about this, they may find the numbers uh, a little difficult, whether it's 714, 916, or 11.2, or 18.1.16. I've seen numbers all over the map. What do you have to say about how many speakers do you need and how many speakers that actually get played? Well, um, I, on the 
again, for the, from the deliverable standpoint of most of these streaming services, your, your typical rooms are going to either be 714 or 916, sometimes 914. Somewhere, somewhere in that range is what, depending upon the size of, of your space, that, that's what the uh, um, uh, configuration of the room will be. Most of the deliverable requirements end up being, I think, 714 along with the DAMP file and uh, uh, associated Pro Tool sessions. So um, that's that's where typically most of, of what we see is, is sort of built and structured around. And, and Ron, what is your room configuration in your large presentation theater? Our large presentation theater, which is a 250-seat room, it's uh, theatrical. Uh, we've got the big RMU, and uh, we're 39 channels in there. Um, and of course, it's all Dolby graced and designed. That's uh, a JBL system, and uh, it's uh, it's really really great. And 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 right now we're looking at uh, you know we own Oceanway Nashville on Music Row as well. And we're looking at some opportunities there for our Studio B to become a smaller room, and that gives us that dynamic for students and production. And of course, you know this is uh, this conference has been a lot about <coughs> music and I'm sorry, film and TV sound. But you know there's a big surge, kind of especially in Nashville right now, about music with Dolby Atmos and that. So with Universal moving that way, with a lot of mixing there, so uh, we're looking at that part of it too uh, for the smaller room, and then the course the home theater type stuff so good uh, and Patrick what can you say about the capacity to have multiple facilities separated by distances to be able to communicate so if for example uh, Sony wanted needed another room and David had a room and they have fiber between them here in Hollywood how does Audinate address that okay so actually, so actually there's a couple of things so um, one of the questions that usually comes up, I don't know if you're going towards the security thing on that, but... Um, well, just the capacity. Oh, just the capacity. And security. Okay, so, so the capacity, yeah, so I think we mentioned that earlier. A, a gigabit line will give you about 512 channels. If you give me a 10 gigabit line, that's 5,000 channels, so we have plenty of capacity for that. Um, getting in and out of your devices, you know, one of the nice things about the network is it's one cable no matter how many channels you have, so you get, that's what we call network detangle, I'm sorry, cable detanglement. So you don't have this massive amount of copper coming out. But uh, yeah, getting through fiber between facilities, um, I can tell you that when you do award shows and stuff like that, there have been, most of the time, the orchestra is no longer in the theater. So they actually just get a sound stage, they put the orchestra there, ship it over, the, over fiber going into the facility with you know 100 channels, no problem. Um, so yeah, that can totally be managed. But the latest technology of Dante Domain Manager supports multiple facilities. Oh yeah, communicating oh, over dark yes. fiber. So one of the one of the tricks fiber. about multiple facilities, I see. Um, so one facility basically will have what we call layer three routing. So one facility will be in you know one nine two dot one six eight dot one is your network. The other one will be one nine two dot one six eight dot two, and you have to be able to get those two across. So uh, Dante Domain Manager is a server software we have that will allow you to link these across those networks seamlessly. And uh, as a matter of fact, I, I put together a video on that where I was explaining to people, uh, we've done these presentations so many times and people say, oh, you have to have a layer three network to use Domain Manager. No, you don't. <laughs> uh, it has a lot of features. They can all be used. You engage how much you need. 
But anyway, so if you have multiple facilities and you need to get uh, things linked across, yeah, we'll take care of all the IT in the background. And the nice thing is uh, it's still a Dante controller just with a couple of check boxes. You'll just check them off and we'll manage everything in the background. Uh, we actually took it and we made one set of tools for the local area network in your room and then another set of tools that would get across the router specifically. So for a producer or a creator who wants to monitor or contribute to a project that might be in a lot, your technology would provide for that capacity. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's that's been coming up where they have multiple rooms. Um, yeah, so they'll yeah they'll have multiple rooms. So one team is working on the film in one area, and like you said, the director is somewhere else, and they just want to say just ship it to my room, and you've got your Adobe Mix. They're gonna redo it in the other room, and yeah, and, we can and connect that near out. near real time capacity, maybe a couple tens of milliseconds. Yeah, that's great. And, and, just curiosity in that situation, how do you guys deal with the clock mastering? Who is the clock master? Okay, this gets this gets sophisticated, but as long as it's uh, short, uh, as long as the delivery time is consistent between places, uh, we do precision time protocol. We convert it to unicast. But, but it's a key that's, point. That's the, the typical key thing. statement is there. Why you can't just call up Spectrum and connect the dots? because they don't care, so right. the time will vary. In your scenario, where you are talking to someone like le level three, who they can deliver you a line with quality of service that is a fixed latency, then you can manage the sync right. across that. So, so there's two, two options. Number one, if we have consistent delivery, we could actually clock it across there. We've developed a unicast version of clocking. The other thing, it sounds even uh, more sophisticated, sounds like we're the Navy, but um, GPS clocking. So we can take two facilities, each one just gets a signal from GPS, and um, and then each room would just chase that. So they'll be resolved that way. But this is not an ordinary thing particularly. This is a precision time protocol functionality developed by SMPTE in conjunction with the network uh, providers that allows for this capacity, which is a requirement for television delivery and production. Right. right. So we, we can clock either way. Sounds good to me. <laughs> Great, Mark. What do you have to add? For uh, we got 15 minutes. What, what's on your mind when it comes to new rooms you're designing? Uh, what's on my? Mind? What are the trends? Um, logistics. Logistics. Yeah, it's just putting everything in in order. When you get to when you start a project, there's a whole bunch of steps you're going to need to go through, and you're going to be dealing with trades. You're going to be dealing with purchasing things. Um, you're going to be dealing with factor X, which will definitely come in to play. And and then you're dealing with your time factor. Let's go back to clocking and how that compresses everything. So when you start a project, be aware that you're going to be dealing with multiple trades. Um, and there's things that are going to pop up. and you're going to have to be flexible, but you also have to make it safe and because you are you have things above people's heads. So the structure and the rigging is a whole other com conversation, but that is one of the factors that plays into it. And also, again, back to making sure the room can handle it. Do you see self-powered speakers hanging over your head? Does that present a practical um, oh boy. reality for you on a daily um, basis? I've had experience. Um, when you put an amplifier 
up, up above, you have another system that can fail. Um, Meyer makes great speakers, but amplifiers fail. And be aware that you're going to have to go back to it and take it down. Or in some instances, like with subs, had to replace the power amp while it's still hanging because, you know, you can get that in and because the drivers aren't bad. So that's one of the things that, that come up with the self-powered speakers. Yes, you don't have the amplifiers and then the heat load and all those factors, which is another thing that comes up is air conditioning. And do you have enough power? Because um, you might have to upgrade your panel. And all these little things start happening. And it's just math. So if you have amplifiers, you might need more power, more air conditioning. If you have powered speakers above you, you might have to go back to them. So if you, you had, sorry, if you had power please, speakers please. in a room like this, you could see where it would be very difficult to get up to change it or fix it. So, so that's you, something to keep so in mind. So how do you practically deal with that in your new installations? We use passive speakers. Passive speakers. Or speakers that could have their remote amplifiers, powered amplifiers that they are remoted, yeah. which is an option. In my room, I just pull out a little step ladder and reach. <laughs> <laughs> but the, but there, there still is an issue for uh, for earthquake country that we're in to be concerned about for safety because even though you can get to it, you don't want it getting to you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Ron, you fortunately, I had Streamline do the rigging. So oh, great! It's, uh, rock yeah. solid. Yeah. And, and rigging is rigging is a new term in recording studio and Atmos lingo because now we're talking about studios that have rigs and and trusses uh, and various anchoring uh, capacities that didn't exist a couple of years ago. Didn't if you go over the Cary Grant, you see all the speakers hanging down there, but what we have up above there is there is a lot of steel. Oh, okay. Um, that's another factor that has to be included. That, yes, you can have an architect come in and design it, and then you can have your acoustician work on it, but you're going to need to be signed off with structural engineering. To what, what are your hard points? And do then you, what are the loads? And do you do anything like safety straps or anything? Uh, is that a new specification for hanging oh, yes. speakers? Oh, yeah. Um, not only is the speaker safety if it drops, but even the whole rig has four-point ties and grade eight bolts, Loctite, um, you know, aircraft nuts or any kind of locking, double nutting systems and things like that. So that's a lot of hardware too, folks. Let's talk about DART for a second. Uh, maybe, Sean, you could... Uh, talk about your experience. Uh, how, by show of hands, who is familiar with the Dolby Dart program? Okay, so it's about half. Um, it's very interesting. Sean, why don't you spend a moment talking about it? Uh, well, I mean, it, it's sort of step one if you're designing any of these rooms, depending upon whether, obviously, you're going for the cinema or the uh, home entertainment. Um, uh, there's two different programs. They do two different things. Um, uh, it's they they operate differently in that the the cinema one basically uh, optimizes for an uh, an area in the middle of the room, um, whereas the home entertainment version 
uh, optimizes for a point in the room, which happens to be the mixer. Um, so, uh, uh, and they, they they calculate differently, kind of based on that. Um, so, you know, depending, for, well, let's say you're doing a home entertainment room. Uh, you know, it, it it all starts with where's your mix position, and then where your speaker is going to go relative to that, and uh, um, very quickly your room dimensions. Um, come into play. Uh, they are very rigid uh, specs related to positions based on the length, width, and height. So you will uh, you know, quickly figure out whether your room can do this or cannot do this. Um, and uh, as I said earlier in, in another presentation, the height is where you very quickly uh, uh, run into trouble. So uh, getting things to work in the eight to nine foot height is challenging, uh, especially if you are trying to have a uh, decent-sized backfield. <laughs> this is uh, a significant improvement in the science of applying speaker technology to a room over exactly. the original 5.1 Dolby Digital, where it was just you know aligned it to 85 dB SPL, and you're Correct. fine. Uh, so uh, why do you think Dolby took this initial or additional step in creating this science program? Well, I, I, I mean, it's it's. Uh, it's absolutely necessary for you know the function of the technology for flyovers and pans to work correctly. I mean, the, if the speakers aren't properly placed, that doesn't work. You get holes and dips. So, um, so you're sort of it. It more or less limits you to where this this technology will function for the object uh, to be placed correctly from room to room and as the volume changes. So, do you think it's a case of Dolby taking more ownership for the application so it works and is perceived yeah, oh, no, as no. a much better Well, I mean, sta standards are good. I mean, this, this is, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because in, on the home entertainment side, you're building something that uh, meets a fairly rigid set of standards. If you get the Dolby certification, the idea is that you can take your mix from room to room that are certified, and this is all going to play the same and probably well. Um, you know, but in reality, versus the actual home environment that it will actually end up in, you know, that's the, <laughs> that's that's sort of an open-ended one. Gotcha. Um, but uh, um, but it, it it certainly you know puts sort of a line in the sand of of how we do stuff and and uh, sets a qualitative benchmark, which is 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 needed for this. And Lane, what do you think your greatest challenges are in setting up? Uh, you mentioned QCing smaller rooms to larger rooms in the middle of projects. How do you find this going? Well, this may sound funny, and it's a good problem to have, but my biggest challenge is finding time to be able to get into our dub stages to be able to do the work, because they're busy all the time. You don't really want to shut it down and not have a, a available for a mix. So right now, we're trying to strategically find times to do these rooms. And this one is slated to be done next in, <clears throat> excuse me, the Quan next door. So that's a challenge. And then also, uh, kind of what Mark was saying, you may look at this room and say, oh, this will be easy to hang a bunch of speakers. because You have the, these beams right here. But in this room, those are either foam or they're maybe eighth-inch plywood. It's all faux. So... These are the things you have to take into account. And most likely, you know, Mark and his team, Streamline, will probably be doing this job, but they're going to have to rig up beyond the ceiling and run a bunch of steel up there. 
Now, in, in the old days, there would be, you know, before Dolby Digital came in, say, before the 90s, there would be a surround mix day. And then we had a home theater mix day. Uh, how is Atmos, uh, do you feel that they're applying Atmos throughout the dub, or is it we'll have an Atmos configuration day? Well, that's a tough one. I think when I started, it was, like you said, you have an Atmos day. But my recent experience is as long as the, the final uh, delivery is in Atmos, that's what they're focusing on. And then we work on the other formats after that. And is a part of that the function of the processor that now, because you can listen through it, you can actually be mixing through it, where in the old days you had to have it and render it and listen back to it? Yeah, I think so. And I think we have brilliant mixers here, and, and they can hear it as right. they're mixing in Atmos. Gotcha. Now, David, from your creative perspective, uh, where do you see this going, and what are your hopes for your room? Well, of course, we're set up to do a variety of things. And, uh, and of course, one of the things that I knew was going to be an issue from past work with TV shows and, and even music-oriented things is that uh, a producer is going to stand up and go, uh, that sound effect isn't good, you know, and uh, and... So, you know, in a theatrical setting, it's too expensive to stop and, and put a sound effect in, but in TV production and music production, it happens all the time. So uh, we had to set up for that. And, uh, and as far as where I see the future going, it's uh, pretty easy to see that personal electronics is gonna be uh, the next biggest thing, particularly for Atmos. And uh, when I'm doing a mix, you know, my controller, we use an iPad into a BSS uh, 806. Uh, you can listen to 7.1, and 2.0, and I have my Q system switch over to the binaural. And I spend as much time in the 2.0 and binaural when I'm mixing as I do in Atmos or any of the other ones, because uh, that's where most of the people are going to hear it. So. Uh, but certainly personal electronics is where it's at. That's where it's going. Great. Uh, Ron, where do you see the students wanting to take Atmos? They're coming into it and they have a world of opportunity. What do you think you're trying to get across to them or they're trying to get across to you? Well, I think that's what's exciting about being in education. Uh, and it, we're, we're fortunate at Belmont, we've got a, a lot of great talented students that come in. And uh, I love to just see them go when they see the stuff. They're they're really very fresh with their approach. You know, they kind of come in and they're like, oh my God, we've got Atmos to mess with. You know, and, and they're vying to, to to put that into their film project or whatever, and and see what they can do with it. And um, uh, I think that's great because that's as an industry what we want. We want that continual role of of young creatives to come in get exposed to the tools and just take them to new levels and uh and that and i love that energy that's one of the really rewarding things about being in education is you know every year or two we just see a whole new kind of uh group and 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 you know a lot of them are really interested in you know the whole uh the uh, of course the immersive the gaming thing is is a is a big thing with young people and and what they can do and you know with that with Atmos and immersive sound so they're thinking about all that stuff and they're they're coming up on the personal electronics so you know they're it's an easy adaption you know adoption for all of it for them so that's that's what's a lot of fun for us so sometimes we're seeing we'll be surprised too with what we see with students and I love that I love that. 
That's great. Uh, do we have a lot of questions, or should we go on for five more minutes? Okay, great. We'll go for another couple minutes. Um, I was with George Massenberg recently, and he was talking about mixing up in uh, uh, what's the name uh, in Montreal, McGill University. Thank you. Uh, and and George is a very famous, uh, accomplished mixer, and he's getting into uh, mixing commercials, commercial spots uh, in immersive technology, and he's been down to work with Blackbird, which is featured out there. I would ask you all to go and watch the uh, uh, 3D presentation with the goggles, because you can see that room. But I think we're really on the precipice of a lot of new things happening uh, for immersive and the way that people watch television, see films, and now with uh, Atmos uh, for Universal making a big push there's going to be a tremendous amount of possibilities for room design, room build, listening experience, professional technology interacting with each other, and uh, it's very exciting. So, uh, why don't we go from the end? And what do you any thoughts for the future before we take some questions? Um, I, I like what you were saying. How the kids will think about a mix. Uh, I mean, I, I was over at Technicolor and. We were working on the um, uh, gravity, and when they had the helmet shot, when you hear everything in there, in, in that environment, we're, we're always like listening to the the big room sound and the, the helicopters. And but then when once they start mixing in that tight environment, I, I I found that that quite interesting. And then what you're saying about where the kids are, how they're going to think about this, and. And my question to you guys is, do you see gaming mixing coming into, say, your home theater uh, mix environments? Are, are you going to be working in that environment? Because you know, here we are in the cinema thing. Do you find that workflow is going to go back and forth with you guys? It's part of the software package they provide. And uh, it's just a matter of whether, you know, when they decide to come on board. But of course, it's practically as if it was made for gaming. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else with any closing thoughts on the future of this technology, or should we go to questions? Uh, this question's for, for Pat. Um, do you see a future, a, a near future, where you'll be able to deliver Dante over IP, I mean, over the Internet? Uh, Dante over the Internet. Uh, you know, I've had conversations about that. Um, one of the challenges with the public internet is that you never know how much bandwidth is going to be there at any given time. Now, once you say you want to have some private or semi-private fiber, maybe some shared fiber between locations, yeah, we've actually had those conversations. Um, when I was working on certain projects, we started figuring out, like, if I run fiber between locations, how much latency is there? And uh, I did a presentation one time where I, I showed this YouTube clip from uh, a TV new, a cable news station. It was the longest latency ever. It was, it was the Guinness Book World's records of the longest latency. It was almost 27 seconds. Somebody routed incorrectly. But so then when we started saying, like, well, how long is it really? And I, I basically figured out from what we get on private fiber, we could get all the way around the world in under a second. With the right connection. We, Private fiber, right? So, I mean, if you just figure out how long would it take me to get across the country, how long would it take me to get across the Atlantic, how long would it take me to get 
Wait, I'm in California. Yeah. So across the country, across the Atlantic, into you know all that stuff. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty reasonable thing to say that you would start doing it that way rather than bouncing it off satellites. And just as kind of a one of those thought processes, though, this came up in music. People wanted to be able to have uh, musicians in Miami, you know, uh, playing with musicians in L.A. and creating a band, uh, creating a recording together. So, you know, we knew, ah, oh, well, that's probably going to be 100 milliseconds between locations. That's not going to be doable. But then how soon could we get there? You start thinking like Moore's Law or something like that. So I actually started thinking like, okay, well, there's got to be a maximum. What's the speed of light between those locations? And I was shocked because it's actually about 10 milliseconds. You know, it's one of those things, a very big number, a very small number, and you start realizing like 10 milliseconds, round trip, that's 20, you can't play together. That's all a function of how much you want to pay well, for that connection. Right. But that's what I was saying. That's, that's, a, that's the speed of light through a vacuum, no repeaters, no nothing. I don't know how to beat the speed of light yet, so... Um, you know, I, I had to tell that panel. person it wasn't going to happen. Anyway, so but private fiber taking the place of the public internet for for things like this is not a problem. Um, but will Audinate be providing more uh, knowledge on how to talk to telcos and what to ask for? I don't think that's on. So they have to call you. Yeah. So well, so devices have a certain amount of buffer in them. Right, and what we have kind of figured out is we found out ways. Like first of all, we have some devices that have can go up to 40 milliseconds of buffer or even longer, and then we've all and we've talked about just making a device. What if it just had a half a second or a second of buffer in there? And you wouldn't use it most of the time, but once in a while, when you want these long connections, you know, a buffer of a one second buffer is not a lot of RAM, so realistically, a WAN box. Yeah. So uh, anyway, we've talked about that. But the other thing we can do is we can say, okay, I already know. If I've got 40 milliseconds, if I can say that the first 50 milliseconds of this connection is going to happen on the network, right, just because we know it's going to be at least that much, and then the 40 milliseconds of buffer can kind of fill in the other end, and that would be a very stable connection, at least across the country. But the short answer, it's still a black art that you have to manage. It's still a black art, right. yeah. The next question. Uh, it's kind of a related question. Um, when we're talking about distribution... Uh, big distances between rooms or these longer internet distances. Is Dante audio only or how's the picture being distributed? Ah, so that gets into a couple of things. So right now Dante is audio only. We've already announced a video solution but it's a compressed video over a gigabit. Um, actually I realized what you were getting at earlier with uh, Symphony 2110. It dawned on me after, I'm sorry. Um, so there is another solution called SMPTE 2110, which is trying to do a video version of that. They have uncompressed video if you have the bandwidth, and I think they're working on compressed video solutions that will scale. So, so 2110 is the broadcast standard for marrying audio to video using AS67 and Dante right. and all IP-based facility workflow. But for Dante's video offer... Well, so I was going to say, so first of all, Dante... Audinate supports 2110, so if you have that for your video, we can speak 2110 with that. Uh, our video offering is, like I said, it's JPEG 2000 codec, and um, actually manufacturers could do whatever they want, but we're like, you got to have the same codec at the transmit and receive, so how about we stick with that for the first version? 
Anyway, so um, we've seen latency as low as eight milliseconds on that. So that's a quarter of a frame, roughly. Um, Between your audio and video? Oh, and the audio and video will be synchronized. Right. Yeah, so whenever we transmit those devices, yeah, we'll say the audio and video shall be at the same time. Um, so the WAN solution might support audio and video is what we're hearing? Yes. One day. One day. <laughs> yeah. Any more questions? We have a couple more minutes left. Yes, sir. Oh, Michael Abbott. Are you standalone with the Dante network that you have, or you've got connectivity where you can push file, uh, not files but data? Mainstream is standalone from the connectivity standpoint of the S6s, the Pro Tools, and how the room operates. But um, you know, all of our files are on a server that get pushed to the room. But yeah, each room is on their own individual network that obviously doesn't reach out to the other stages or outside of here. But, they're standalone, but they can they work off of a server that we can pull from. Lane, haven't you done some capture work uh, from a number of years ago where you're taking audio from the stages back to your server room on the network? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, back several years ago, we did a lot of uh, whatever it took to get data from one room to another room, and... Then something happened several years ago, and uh, which actually was probably a good thing in the long run because it locked us down. It it, it trained us to be very aware and to uh, probably I don't know we're probably one of the better data security you know uh, content companies out there. A, a domain manager will provide for enhanced security options, even though you already have good security in the layer three. Yeah, so uh, domain manager, basically what you do is you can have multiple devices on your network. You can create work groups. So you can say, here's you know all the amplifiers and all the devices back there that would be on the network. Bam, that's a domain. And then you can create, um, so if you're, if you're familiar with Dante Controller, you've got all the routing capabilities. What you do is you log in with credentials, and Dante Domain Manager will say, okay, here's the rooms or the room that you have access to and what features you have access to in that room. So you maybe they'd give you access to patching, but not clocking, not changing IP addresses, that kind of stuff. So um, they can kind of set up different users for different roles. That's kind of the one of the big goals of it. Next question. OK, any final thoughts? OK, well, I think it's been great to together. I think if you're in this room, you have a great interest in this technology. It's been a great pleasure to be on the panel with everyone here. Thank you all for attending.